Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for allowing us to gather together here today. We want to thank you, Father, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive on the basis of the death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, today we ask as we continue in the Gospel of John that we would be I have the eyes of our heart be open wide to the miracle of what he did and the incredible story of his ministry. Father, we pray this morning, too, for all those who are sick, financial need, and any of the other difficulties that people are having at this time. We pray for your provision for them. We also want to pray uh, for the persecuted church around the world, Father, that you would give them the strength that they need and encouragement and hope that they need, too. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we get started today, I do have a couple of things. One is that every month we do sponsor a different missionary organization. This month we're sponsoring Chosen People Ministries. As many of you know, their ministry is an outreach evangelism to Jewish people here and in other countries. They've been experiencing the same difficulties as everybody else because of COVID, especially since they they travel so much. So they need prayers, although I guess it looks like things are going to get back together, back to normal pretty soon. We're praying for that. Um, but in any event, they, they uh, evangelize and disciple and serve Jewish people um, everywhere and help us Christians to do the same thing and as we come across Jewish people and uh, do the same thing with our help prayer, financial support, they're going to continue doing their good work, preaching the gospel to the Jewish people around the world. By the way, also, I think most of you know, but not everybody perhaps does, Lou DeGasparis, who used to join us on Thursday evenings for Bible study, she died this week, and um, we would just ask that you pray for her, her family. We had the, we had the little uh, funeral service yesterday at the funeral home, but uh, the family needs prayers at this time, as you can imagine. And finally, I've set the over-under for people that are going to arrive at 11 today at 3. So we'll have to see if I'm right about that. (laughs) All right, let's begin. title of today's message um, is right there. What do you seek? What do you seek? It's a question that Jesus asked his first two disciples. It's a question that we have to consider, too, for ourselves. What do we seek in this life? What do we seek from the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we seek by gathering together? Our passage this morning is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Let's begin now in verse 35. John chapter 1 verse 35. We've already seen the prologue. Incredible that Jesus Christ is God and that he's existed for all of eternity and he became flesh, dwelt among the apostles. Um, then we saw John proclaiming him as the, the Lamb of God and who takes away the sin of the world. And then we saw that he told the, the, his, John's disciples that he would, this one that would come after him was of a higher rank and would be baptizing with the Spirit and, in fact, is the Son of God. So then we see what happens next. Okay, And we see that in John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, the day after John proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God, John was standing with two of his disciples. They were John's disciples first. We're going to see they're about to become the Lord Jesus Christ's disciples. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John speak, And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you all, you will all see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. These are two remarkable days, full of testimonies and introductions. By the end of the next day, Jesus will, have, be heading to Val- Jesus will be heading to Galilee with five disciples. That's what happens in these first two days. Okay, let's begin in verse 35 again. John 1, 35. Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. So here we have another day, the day after John had declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God and the Son of God. And this, too, will be a momentous day. This time he, he speaks directly to two of his disciples. And those two are going to have their lives about to be changed forever. Now I want you to see something here. They didn't get any miraculous signs. It wasn't as if Jesus performed a miracle. And then they said, oh, we're going to follow him. They, that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, Jesus never even said one word to them. Well, then how did this happen? It's simple. They just believed what their teacher John said about Jesus. Jesus at the end of the gospel is going to say to Thomas, so because you've seen the, 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 the uh, imprints of the nails in my palms and the, and the sword, where the, where the um, sword went through, where the spear went through my side, because you've seen, you believe. And then he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are in the same situation that those two disciples were in. We didn't, I don't know, hopefully, uh, maybe you did. But I didn't see any miracles when somebody came and preached me the gospel. Okay? And yet, because, on the basis of somebody else witnessing to the Lord Jesus Christ, we believed. And that's the story. That's been the story ever since. Ever since that day when John pointed his two disciples to Jesus. And they left John's ministry and started following Jesus Christ's ministry. John had told them. Great thing. So that it's, it's, it's not like they didn't know anything, right? He told them this was the Lamb of God. He told them he had a higher rank than John did. He said, this is the Son of God. It's a tremendous testimony. And on the basis of that and that alone, they decided to follow Jesus. And that meant to sit under his teaching. And then as they walked behind him, Jesus turned around and he asked, What do you seek? What do you seek? You know, um, some, some teachers would be really excited when have people follow them and maybe thinking to themselves, you know what, wow, I got something going. But the first thing that Jesus did to these disciples was challenge them. And said, okay, you, you, I see you're following me. What, why? What do you seek? Why are you following me? All right. And they answered. 
Verse 38. Look at verse 38 with me too. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, that may seem a little unusual or even evasive to us. After all, you have, we have the Lord Jesus Christ asking me a question. And what do I do? I turn around and ask him a question. You know, you didn't even answer it, you know. Um, it's a good debating technique, but I don't think it's kind of the thing we would expect somebody to do after the Lord addressed them in that way. So it might seem a little evasive, a little abrupt, a little disrespectful. Rabbi, where are you staying? They answered his question with a question of their own. But the question did reveal what they were seeking. You see, because if they knew where he was staying, then they'd know where he would be teaching. So that they would know, okay, if I want to be his disciple, here's where I need to be. So that was an answer, even though it was in the form of a question. I want you to notice something else. Jesus did not ask, who do you seek? You might expect that. Who do you seek? No, what did he say? What do you seek? What do you seek? If Jesus were to ask you that question, what would your answer be? What do you seek? A healing? A miracle? An experience? Are you seeking a certain feeling when you gather together? Do you want a prophet who will tell you the future? Do you want a show when you come up? You want to hear a lot of singing and a lot of entertainment? Some people may say, oh look, I'm just here because I want a meal. Or some money. Some people want to have, say, if I do this, I'll have a lot of money. Joel Olstein says I will. Right? Well, th- these are all things. I mean, I'm, these are all things that people, if they were honest, would perhaps answer. What do you seek? What do you seek out of this Jesus Christ? What do you seek of, of his people? A better job? A better family life? Or do you seek to come to know the Lord Jesus, our Savior? Do you seek to to get to know his Father, God the Father? Do you seek to just sit and hear the word of God as it's taught? The word of the cross, the truth. It's a question we all need to answer. Well, they asked Jesus a question and then Jesus answered them with an invitation. With an invitation. In other words, he just didn't give them an answer. He also challenged them to take some action. Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Now, by coming, they actually took him at his word. You see. And that brings out a principle. We say, we, the people of the world say, you know, seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. Well, in the case of Christianity, actually, it's the other way around. Believing is seeing. It's only when we believe the truth about Jesus Christ that we start to see the glory of God in him. It's only when we believe the promises that we've been made that we start to see how great and loving our God is. So we too have to come and see. And then we will believe and then we'll see. Come means I believe, then I will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. They obeyed him. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. By the way, the 10th hour was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You see, the way that that the Jewish day was, uh, it started at 6 a.m. That was hour zero. Okay, so if you count forward 10 hours, um, it's a little confusing today because of spring forward. So it's really only nine hours today. But in general, it would be 4 o'clock. In the afternoon. And that's what time it was. That's why, that's why that, it was later in the day. And they were staying with him. And, they, and, and you can imagine what that was like. Well, the gospel doesn't record anything about that time that they spent with him. Not one word. Not one action. But can't we imagine that conversation that they must have had with Jesus that afternoon? He was, they knew it now. He was the fulfillment of the promises of, the, of, of Moses and the law and the prophets. That the Lord would send a Savior, would send the Messiah, would send the King. They, they believed everything that John said, and here he was, right with them in the flesh. 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was literally true for these disciples that day. Can you imagine? What, what would you want to know? What would your conversation be like if you had to be able to spend an afternoon with the Lord? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to imagine. You know, I mean, we might ask some foolish questions, perhaps, but he would give us wise answers anyway. And, and uh, he would sometimes turn around and ask us a question just like he had earlier in the day with them. And so we don't know exactly, but it must have been something that actually strengthened their confidence tremendously and, and really was an incredibly joyful experience, a very calm, peaceful, joyful afternoon. So we do know one thing for sure, though. We know that whatever it was that Andrew was seeking, he found it that afternoon in the time he spent with the Lord Jesus. Let's continue in verse 40. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two, the two disciples of John the Baptist, who heard John speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, by the time that John wrote this gospel, Simon Peter was very well known. He, along with John and James, had been the head of the first church in Jerusalem. And, and Peter would be, the, would be the one that would become the leader of the apostles. So by the time that the Gospel of John was written, he was far better known than Andrew. Okay? So that's why he's, he's named one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Like, oh, right, Simon Peter's brother. What did he do? Uh, again, again, he spent an afternoon with the Lord. He had seen the Lord in the flesh. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of God. He didn't know exactly what those titles meant yet. All right? to, the, to, the, to the Jew in the first century, the Son of God really was tied into the idea of the Messiah. So he hadn't yet really come to terms with the idea of all that it meant that God was in the flesh. But he certainly knew that this was the promised one, the promised deliverer, the promised king, the promised Messiah. And when he had had an opportunity to spend some time with him, he ran out and he sought his brother, Simon Peter. Verse 2, he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. By the way, you'll see some of this. You'll see where there will first be a Hebrew or an Aramaic term. And that's because he was actually quoting what was said, usually by the Lord Jesus. So he would, then he would translate it into Greek at the time. And so we see both of those names, and that's why we have them. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So here in verse 40, we now learn one of those two disciples. His name was Andrew. He was the brother of Simon Peter. Interestingly enough, the other one is not named and won't be. As far as a person who read the gospel for the first time, you would think, well, here's this other one. What about him? How come we don't know his name? How come he doesn't do anything? The second disciple doesn't go after anybody else. It's kind of like, wait a minute, that's mysterious. Who is that? Well, most likely, and I wouldn't say definitely, but I want to couch it for people who haven't been convinced of it yet. This was the author of this gospel. This was John, the son of Zebedee. For one thing, it has all the markings of an eyewitness. He knew what happened one day to the next. He knew exactly what happened on this day, that day, and the day after. He knew the actual time of day when they went to see Jesus. Now, if he was he one of the... If he was one of them, he would certainly have known the time of day. I mean, think about it. It's the most remarkable day when he, when he first met the Lord Jesus, the one that he would follow for three and a half years. The one that he and he only, among the male disciples, would stand at the cross underneath and watch what happened to him. He, he would be the one that would run first and reach the tomb when it was empty. So that when he thinks back on where it all began... He would have known the hour. We would have too, probably. You know, sometimes when there's events, usually they're sad but historic. Like, for example, the Challenger space. For those of you that remember that, you may have heard of the fact that so many people knew exactly where they were when John F. Kennedy was shot, for example. Well, can you only imagine what it 
multiply that by a hundred and, and think about where were you? What time was it when you first met Jesus Christ? So it, it certainly appears that this was an eyewitness. And I, we can go through this at some point, we probably will, and take all of the different evidence in this gospel. Now, when you put it all together, it makes it almost um, 100% probable that the author is John, the son of Zebedee. And he was, also, he, he was also what was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's interesting that, now we know from the other gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know all about John, right? John, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, right? The sons of thunder, that's what Jesus nicknamed them. Um, and they're, they're very prominent in the Gospels. They were the three that, uh, they were uh, two along with Peter that went to the Mount of Transfiguration. So John was well known. And we, so yet when we come to this Gospel, he's always anonymous. He's never named, not once. But this one is called the disciple whom Jesus loved, not named, and so forth. So, um, in any event, what's the first thing that Andrew does? He goes and finds his brother, Simon, and tell him about Jesus. I don't know about you, but if you can think about when when you first heard the gospel and believed... Not everybody can remember that particular day, often because they were children. They may not have necessarily. Sometimes we wonder, well, did I start believing that day or the day after it? But we didn't have Jesus in the flesh to tell us exactly that. But but in any event, when someone does become a believer in Christ, the first thing you want to do is what? Tell somebody else. Tell somebody else. And we see that that's exactly what happened with Andrew. He went to tell his brother and he said, we have found the Messiah See that that name would have definitely rang bells when it comes to Andrew, um, comes to Peter, or really anybody who was uh, following the Bible at that time. And there was such an expectation at that time in the first century that the Messiah would appear. They, 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 if they knew their Bible, they knew that Malachi would pr- promised that Elijah would come, and then the Lord would come. Um, they had had four hundred years when they were under um, different empires, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, and they didn't have a word of prophecy during that time. All they had was a hope, an expectation that one day the Messiah would come. So when Andrew said to his brother, we found him, you know, that he knew exactly what he was talking about. This was the anointed one. That's what Messiah means in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, the anointed one. Now, to a, to a Jew in the first century, the anointed one meant three different things. It meant either he was the king, like of the line of David. David was anointed, and the kings after them were anointed to set them apart for their, for their kingship. But in addition to that, the high priest was also anointed for the same reason, because they're being called and set apart, all right? The prophets, some of them too, were anointed. And so the interesting thing, though, about Jesus is he's all three. He's all three. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why when we call him the Jesus Christ, and some people treat it as a last name, it's not a last name at all. It's identify who he is. He is the promised Messiah for the Jewish people. He is the Christ, the anointed one. Anointed, but we understand now what he was anointed for, which is, of course, was to have that public ministry, but way beyond that was to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. That was what he was anointed. That was his purpose. And then, of course, God the Father raised him from the dead. So again, Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. It's a very simple thing. Hey, come here. I want to show you the Messiah that we found. But Christians have been doing that ever since. This is the first example of really the, the most effective way that the gospel has always been spread. We tend to picture these huge events where there's a powerful speaking evangelist and, and say, well, a lot of people came to Christ that day. And that happens for sure. There are men who are gifted to be able to speak to large people and reach their hearts and, and give them the best possible opportunity to hear the truth about Jesus. But I would venture to guess that if you had 500 Christians in any kind of church or any situation, I would say probably 450 at least were led to Christ by someone that they knew, someone close to them. Okay? That's been the way in which the church has really spread. 
I told you, that I gave you a homework assignment. I don't know if, if you remember it. I gave you a homework assignment last week. It was kind of a mathematical exercise. I don't know if I have it here today. Um, remember, I said, let's, let's imagine there's a church that starts with one person, remember? And then all that happens is if that one person tells nobody else, how many people are in the church? One, right? Just one. Okay, now let's imagine for four months, every Sunday, that one tells one more. And then that one that comes in tells one more and brings them in. At the end of four months, 17 weeks, how many people are in the church? 17, right? Everyone brings... Now, what happens if they invite two people each every week? Two new people come, and then those two new people invite... Each of them invite two new people. You know, it's like the commercial in the 70s or some kind of thing, and so on and so on and so on. Guess how many people will be in the church after 17 weeks? You ready for this number? 262,143 people. Even if, if everybody leaves after they bring the two. In other words, you come one week, you bring two, and you're out of there. And then those two remain, and then they bring two more, and then they're out of there. So you have like one, two, four. You're still, at the end of 17 weeks, have 131,072 people. That's the power of two. You know, Jesus would send the disciples out two by two, for example. And so, and I'm not saying that, I'm not putting pressure on everybody or putting you down if you don't bring two new people. But the interesting thing about that mental exercise is you don't have to be bringing all kinds of people every week. If we all chipped in and bring in two, and then, then we tell those people, it's really important that you bring two in the next week. I mean, of course, not everybody's going to do it. People will be disgruntled and leave. But you can get the sense of the power of, of just people preaching the gospel to one another and inviting them. Man, I don't know what we'd do if we had 262,143 people. <laughs> we'd have a huge internet ministry. That's what we would have. But in any event. So that's what happened. That's what happened. And um, this would continue. You know, this wasn't, they just didn't do that. You know, Andrew did it, but they, they, we're going to see more of this right now. Jesus, of course, notice in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Okay, so Andrew brings Peter, Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, you're Simon, the son of John. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus knew him from like hanging around with the fishermen in Galilee or any of that. This was another indication of really the omniscience, if you were, of Jesus. The fact that he knew people the first time he met them, knew all about them. Remember the woman at the well, which we're going to see in chapter 4. I hope, by the way, you're continuing to read the Gospel of John. All right? Every week, I'd like you to read through it at least once. Why? Because now when I say, hey, in chapter 4, which we'll get to, you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember reading that. I read that. I know a lot of you know from years of study and years of being a Christian. But in any event, we need to have our minds refreshed and renewed. So when he gets to chapter 4 and he's, he's thirsty at the well, um, and the Samaritan woman comes out, and, and then they have that whole incredible conversation where he talks about water that he has, but you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And then, and then she says, I want some of that water. And again, he asks a question. It seems like he does that a lot. And he said, where's your husband? Now, that, that was a real challenge to this woman, because you know she had five. That's what he said to her. She said, I don't have a husband right now. He says, you've spoken correctly. You've had five. Now, Jews didn't go to Samaria. He was passing through on his way from Jerusalem back up north to Galilee. And yet here's this woman whom he definitely never met before. And he knows that she she has five husbands. And she says, you must be a prophet, right? And Jesus did that a lot. That's what he's doing here with, with Simon Peter. You can imagine the effect it had. The Lord then goes on and he gives Simon that new name. Cephas in the Aramaic, Peter in the Greek. It means a stone or a rock. A stone or a rock. Now a lot of people will look at that and say, well, he saw that Peter was strong and he was the best leader there. And actually that was nothing of the sort. You see, when the Lord gives a name, he's not describing anybody. He's telling them what he's going to make them into. Right? I'm going to make you into Peter, 
will be, as he said, the rock, the one who would be the leader of the apostles someday. And the only reason he got to be that leader is because Jesus, God the Father, made him into that. It's very comforting. You know, I can remember the day I was ordained. And, I, and then all of a sudden, people started calling me pastor. You know, it was a new name, right? And I just was so intimidated by that. You know, whenever they said pastor, I thought immediately to the guy who ordained me, not to me. It's like, who? You know? But eventually, I hope you can see a little of this, that the Lord brought me along, had me study, had me grow, had me make mistakes behind the pulpit and feel embarrassed. And, but then to get to be among the people and to minister to people. And then all of a sudden, one day you're like, you know what? I guess maybe I, I am a pastor. But I didn't do it. The Lord did it. It's the same thing for you. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. You could say it's an anointing by the Holy Spirit. That's not a bad way to look at it. As long as you don't, you know, get into the place where you kind of get superstitious and um, thinking about an anointing and kind of, again, thinking miracles are going to happen and the birds are going to sing. Not that, but the fact that you've been given a special gift. And that special gift is something, again, at the first time you realize, wow, you know, I have a special gift to be an evangelist or to be somebody who is financially able to give generously or leadership or, or teaching or any of the different gifts, simply being able to show mercy. There's a lot of people, somebody comes in the scene, like yesterday at a funeral, and you kind of go in, and a lot of people, most people, myself included, don't really know what to say, right? You go to a funeral, you kind of feel like you don't even, in a way, want to go to the family because it's so emotional and you don't know what to say. But then there are always people who immediately put the, put the family at ease and comfort and have that gift. They have a gift of being able to show mercy and compassion, hospitality, those kind of things. But again, none of us are experts at it the first day. You know? A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that you know, the Lord says you're, gonna, you're, you're now given a gift, and then miraculously you're this incredibly gifted, talented person that's going to do everything right. It's not the way it works. The, the gift is miraculous, but then he has a plan for bringing us along so that we actually live in that gift as, again, as we come and see, as we cooperate and, and, and line up and understand that it's only by learning and understanding who Jesus is and who he's made me to be that he can grow me into what he wants me to be. That's what happened with Peter that day. He was, he was basically, again, not describing Simon that day. Instead, he was making a promise. He was promising to make Simon into Peter, into that rock in the future. All right, let's continue in verse 43. The story will move into another day, the third day here. There'll be more witness, more introductions, more incredible, incredible things revealed. Look at verse 43, the next day. That was the day after Andrew and the other disciple became believers in Jesus, introduced to him by John, the day after Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. Another day. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. By the way, um, you'll see this next week. I'm going to show you a map. You know, a lot of people think that it was right around the corner, you know. Well, actually, um, where John was baptizing, right, Bethany beyond the Jordan, from there to Canaan was about 75 miles. They didn't have a train. They didn't have airplanes. They walked. So it took some time. That's my point. There was a, one of the great things, though, about the walking that Jesus did was it kept him real close to the people. You know how we fly today and we fly from Florida maybe out to California and there's this thing that you look out the window and you look down at it and we call it flyover country. You ever hear that expression, flyover country? Well, guess what? There's people there. There's lives there. There's people that need to be ministered to there. And so by walking, Jesus had an opportunity to see these people face to face. They got to see him. And he could spend their time with people, talking with them as they walked along. That's one of the best ways to have a conversation with somebody, is to just take a walk with them. A lot of times when we want to have some face-to-face, but just one other person, you know, we just, hey, come on, let's just go for a walk now. 
And he did that over and over and over again. 75 miles is a long walk, however. One day I did a, a, a walkathon in Boston when I was young. And it was a 20-mile walk. And by halfway through, I had broken my foot. guess I wasn't meant to be a big, long walker. But, but that's, that's just when he says he's purposing to go into Galilee. He's saying, you know, he's going to make a journey there. And he found Philip. He found Philip. By the way, it's not entirely clear from the Greek whether the he, he purposed, he found. Not entirely clear. Is that Andrew, he, or is that Jesus, he? Well, I, I can, I'm confident. I believe it's definitely Jesus. All right. It's definitely Jesus. Because after all, he was the leader. You think Andrew was going to purpose? He's going to say, okay, Jesus, we're going, let's go. We're going to Galilee. I don't think so. Right? So I think it's definitely Jesus. In any event, what happened? He decided, we're going to Galilee, guys. And then he find, finds Philip. And if that's true, that that's Jesus here, it means Philip was the only one who was not led to Jesus by another disciple. He's kind of special. He was the only one in this group where Jesus seeks him out. Now you might say, well, Philip, boy, I don't know that much about him. You're, well, you're right. Although you'll, know, you'll find out more about him in the Gospel of John than in any other by the way, that's another hint that, that the writer, the author of this gospel is John. The reason for that is that Philip was from Bethsaida, which was also in Galilee. And the, and the reason why John would have known a lot about him is because he came from the same region. All right? But in any event, Jesus goes to him and says, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, that's interesting, too. I want you to get, to the picture, get the picture here up a little bit more. Remember, John's ministry of baptism was in Bethany by the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan, rather. I just told you that that was 75 miles away from Galilee. And yet, we're going to see here that there's Galileans. Jesus goes, you know, the people, the disciples that he makes in these first two days, were all Galileans. Now, why would that be? Why would there be Galileans way 75 miles away, three-day journey at least, over there where John was baptizing? It's really an obvious answer, which is they came to be baptized. They came and they stayed. And so you had this contingent from Galilee who kind of came all the way down and journeyed together, I would say, in order to be there and, and get this baptism. And then they realized that they were now disciples of John and they remained in that, in that area. In any event, the Lord says to Philip, follow me. Follow me. This means that he was inviting Philip to become his disciple. It does work on two levels. On the one hand, he is saying, hey, we're making a trip. Why don't you come with us? That's certainly on one level what he's saying. But he's saying much more than that. He's basically giving another invitation. I want, I want you to be another one of my disciples. Come on, come on with me and sit under my teaching. Be part of my ministry. Be part of what's going to happen in serving others. By the way, he will extend that same invitation. Again and again. If you read the other Gospels, you'll see him saying the same thing. Follow me. He would say to Peter, follow me. Actually, Peter, Andrew, John, and James. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, that meant becoming his disciple. By the way, it's not the same thing as believing in Jesus Christ. You see, we're called saints on the basis of believing in Christ and being made new creation and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and being placed in union with Christ. And that's all God's work, the moment we believe in in his son. That's a saint. A disciple was literally somebody who followed somebody's ministry and became um, a servant, if you will, but a student, for sure, of a particular teacher. Okay, that's different. Okay, that's different from being a believer. Now, you would think that you know, being a believer would be a prerequisite to being a disciple, but it's not. I just give you one name to prove my point, Judas. Judas was a disciple, but he was never a believer. Those are two different things. I'll just throw this out also, that the last time the word disciple is used is in the book of Acts. It's not used at all, in other words, in any of the epistles. Paul never calls us disciples. He calls us saints. You see, really, if you look at it, disciples were those who actually walked with Jesus when he was on, or a disciple of John, or whoever it might be. 
Those are people who literally walked with him and studied under him. All right? We're called saints. By the way, if I had a pick between the two, I would take saint. Why would I do that? Because now we have the Holy Spirit with us all the time. He's inside us, explaining us things about Jesus Christ that go way beyond anything that the disciples understood when he was walking with them, by the way. All right. So he invites Philip to become his disciple. And he'll extend that invitation many, many times in the future. Look at verse 45. What happens next? Well, the same thing that's happened already. Somebody who becomes a believer in Christ is introduced to them, to him, becomes a disciple. And what's the first thing they do? Philip found Nathaniel, probably a friend, but again, certainly somebody who was with them on that journey coming down south. Philip finds Nathaniel and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, that was the Messiah. When the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 talks about this future time when the Messiah would come, he calls him mighty God, prince of peace, God in the flesh. So whether they understood what that meant or not, it was clear that they understood that Moses had spoken of him. Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, had spoken about Jesus Christ. Jesus would say the same thing. He would say, Moses wrote of me. Okay, so, and by the way, after Jesus rises from the dead, and it's in the Gospel of Luke, there are those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Guess what they were doing? They were walking with Jesus. They didn't know it, okay, because he disguised himself in some manner or fashion. But they walked with him. And he asked them a question. He says, hey, you know, um, why are you so sad? They were sad. Well, don't you, you're the only person from Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened in the last three days in Jerusalem. I want you to think about that for a minute. Imagine being Jesus, the one who was crucified from them, the one who rose from the dead. And they're saying, ah, man, it's too bad you don't know what happened. I don't know. I was what happened. But in any event, he's going along. And as he's going along, he's teaching them all about the Messiah. And it says, you know, this is he that was, was written. Didn't you understand that the Messiah had to suffer and rise and be raised from the dead? He said that he used the Old Testament scriptures to prove it. That's why a lot of people think, well, you know, the Jewish people, they probably have a hard time because there's nothing about Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Full of it. In fact, every book of the Bible, including every book of the Old Testament, you can, you can find something that points to Jesus Christ. In any, even in the book of Ruth. You know, no matter what you look at, any book of the Bible, Jesus is there. Okay, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. By the way, that was the way people were referred to, the men back then. It was the the name, the town, and their dad. And that's exactly what we have here. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, interestingly enough, remember, John is reporting what these folks said. By the time he writes this gospel... Now, he knows that Joseph was just his foster father, that really God the Father was his real father. Nevertheless, at that time, Philip didn't know that yet. Yet, So what happens again? The Lord has invited Philip to become his disciple. And what does Philip do? He seeks out somebody else and testifies to him about Jesus. Again, no miracle yet, yet. But he's just testifying. That's the power of the word of God. Right? A lot of times when we, when we um, try to evangelize somebody, preach them to God, we feel like we've got to do something like fantastic. We have to say something they never heard or understood before. And we do, but it's not what we always think. We think that somehow I have to learn about their life and tell them, you know, this is where you've gone wrong and kind of build up to this great conclusion as if, you know, by that, by some magic we have, you know, somebody's going to believe in Christ. That's not it at all. Our job really is to just bring the meal to them. Just take exactly what the gospel message is and preach that to them, right? The gospel message is simple. We're all born sinners. We need a Savior. If we didn't get a Savior, we'd all be in the lake of fire. But God provided his Son to be our Savior, and that meant he had to die for our sins 
because he was God and man. And then he was buried. And then on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ, their Savior, whom God raised from the dead, will never perish but have eternal life. That's our message. I don't know exactly the message that Philip gave to Nathaniel. We have a record of some of it here. You know, he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And again, he seeks the next person. I hope you're noticing a trend, by the way. John introduces the two disciples. Andrew introduces Peter. Philip introduces Nathaniel. So it's a bunch of witnessing and inviting going on here. Now, we're not told here, but we are told in John chapter 21, something else about Nathaniel. I'd like you to turn there, please. John chapter 21, verse 22. We're talking about Nathaniel, whom Philip sought out after he had found the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. John twenty one twenty two. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, we've already been introduced to Simon Peter. We'll be introduced to Thomas later. Okay, that's doubting Thomas, the one who said, I got to see it to believe it. Thomas, called Didymus. And Nathaniel of Cana. Now that's kind of important. We'll see why in a moment. See, Nathaniel came from Cana. All right. You know what? I'm going to show you a map just because I think it'll help. All right. If you're a speed reader, I always say this. You just saw the rest of the message. But ta-da! All right. So I just want you to—I just want you to see a couple of things here. This is uh, this is what today we call Israel. All right, they called it Palestine back then. Uh, here's Jerusalem. Okay, then it, uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan was just you take a trip from Jerusalem, you cross the Jordan, and there you are. That's Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's where John was baptizing. Okay, now then you see how you know, there's this valley here along the Jordan River. That was really the best and perhaps the only place you could walk north, unless you wanted to go way out here by the coast. So there's no doubt when they end up going up to Galilee, this is the way they go, all right? And there's, by the way, Capernaum. That's where Jesus' ministry in Galilee would be centered, and this is where he was born, all right? Just to give you a sense. And again, from here to here or so is 75 miles, all right? Now, just to give you a few more of the cities that you want. Okay, so here's Bethsaida. That's where, that's where Philip was from. Okay, and these are all different towns around the Sea of Galilee. All right. By the way, I want to just show you something else, just so you get your bearings. This is the Dead Sea, just so you know, and that's that's the Sea of Galilee. All right. So we see over here. We now see. Okay, there's the Sea of Galilee. We're zooming in on this region. All right. And again, this is where Jesus was born. And now this is where he lived. He was born in Bethlehem in Nazareth. So he grew up. Okay. And then we have Bethsaida. That's Philip, all right? This is also the, the birthplace of uh, Andrew and Peter, all right? Now, later on, they would come on down here and have a fishing ministry around the lake, but right here where they grew up. And then, um, by the way, there's Magdala. There's somebody from Magdala that we're going to be introduced in a little while. You know who that is? Mary. We call, him, we call her Magdalene, but really her name was Mary of Magdala, right? The person's name and where they're from, Mary of Magdala. And then, of course, Cana. This was where Nathaniel was from. So I want you to get the picture. Here's where Philip was from. Here's where Andrew and Peter were from. Here's where uh, where is it again? I'm losing my mind here. Oh, duh. Cana. That's where Nathaniel was from. Okay. So just to get a sense of the geography. All right. Now we're going back. Nice picture of the church there. A lot of these things we're going to come to in a minute. All right. So we just finished John chapter 21, 22. And again, what it, it, 
it clearly is what happened was that there was a group of men from Galilee who'd heard about this, this John the Baptist, this great prophet, the one who was baptizing in the, in the, in the River Jordan and telling people that, that they should confess their sins and repent because the Lord was coming. Well, they wanted to be a part of that. And so they went down those 75 miles through that valley and ended up in Bethany beyond the Jordan to be baptized by John. I think that, that contingent was everybody that we've met so far. Except John the Baptist, but Andrew, John the writer, um, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They all were probably together. We we can't be sure of that. But this would explain why Philip was immediately able to declare that he had found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Why? Because if he were a disciple of John, because that's what happened. The Galileans, they went beyond the Jordan and then they stayed to become his disciples. So they would have heard the things that John said about Jesus. They would have all heard that he said, there's one coming, and I'm not fit to untie his sandal strap. There's one who will be baptizing in the Spirit. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. So that explains why Philip was immediately able to say, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. By the way, Moses, okay, perhaps the tie-in here, was that it was Moses who instructed the Jews to kill the Passover lamb. Why? So they would put the blood on the lintel, and when the angel of death came by, it would, they, their, their house would be spared, and then that would, that would give them an opportunity to be freed up from Moses. All right, that is a picture of our salvation. You have the blood of the lamb. You have the deliverance. All right, that's what Moses, one of the things, there are other things as well, And we've already seen in terms of the prophets, we saw John speak the words of the prophet Isaiah. Remember we saw that? I am just a voice crying in the wilderness, right? Prepare the way of the Lord. And so we see even in John's gospel in chapter 1, these references um, back to Moses and the prophets. But here's something kind of funny, all right? So here we have Philip, okay? He's going now to Nathaniel. All right. He's got the most amazing news, right? What is he saying? He's saying, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And then you can picture Nathaniel. Yeah, yeah. Who is it? Who is it? Then he says, Jesus of, and then he says a word, Nazareth. And that's, oh, by the way, that's all Nathaniel heard in the immediate, right? Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What does Nathaniel say? He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, you got to see the humor here. You know, to me, this is definitely an eyewitness who would have seen these things because you can't really make this stuff up. I mean, if this was going to be a, you know, a, um, a movie, we wouldn't have him say that, right? We would say, oh, great, this is who I was looking for, right? No, he focuses on a very human thing, Nazareth, you know. I'm going to really make enemies now, not for you guys because you don't know about this, but back in Rhode Island where I grew up, there were a number of cities ringed around the major capital, Providence. And uh, there were a bunch of the nice towns, Lincoln and so forth. Well, there was one called Central Falls. And Central Falls was this place where nobody really wanted to admit they were from. All right? So, so Nazareth, Central Falls was the Nazareth of Rhode Island. There's always a place that, oh, you're from there, you know, whatever it might be. That's, that was Nazareth. And again, that's what Philip keyed on. That's very human, by the way. That's very human. Like, it's all built up. Okay, this is great. This sounds great. And then you get the letdown. Well, he's from Nazareth, you know. Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, Philip? Um, And then Philip just answers him. He doesn't argue with him. You know, he doesn't say, well, you know, I I knew some good people out of Nazareth before. And, you know, uh, Bethsaida isn't so great. Neither is Cana. Why are you so up and mighty? Nope. He just said, come and see. In other words, by the time you see this guy... You're not even going to care that he was from Nazareth, that backward town in Galilee. But he was now concerned. Nathan was very concerned that Jesus was from Nazareth. Apparently, we're not told, but apparently Nazareth had a bad reputation. By the way, even among the Galileans, he had a bad reputation. The Galileans, Galilee, they were the bad boys of this region, of the Palestine region. You know, they were the renegade province, if it, as it were. So people, people from Judah thought, those people from Galilee are just crazy, right? Then you have people in Galilee saying, well, those people from Nazareth, that's a bad town. You get the picture? 
There's always somebody else you can pick on. It's like the, like the cartoon of the guy in the job, and he's, he's, he's the, the boss is putting him down, and then he goes home and he kicks the dog. You ever see that? There's always somebody you can kick. So in any event, Philip ignores that, and he just invites him. Come and see. Come and see. And that reminds us, too, and I'm sure you've experienced this if you haven't done any witnessing. You'll, there'll always be objections, right? If somebody's not ready to believe in Christ, they'll always come up with something. Always. Well, you know, uh, you really sure that God created the world? And you really, you really believe those miracles? And they'll go on and on. They'll be picking things apart, all right? And, you know, what do we do? We try to de- argue, right, and defend. Or, you know, like I was talking to a friend of mine um, who's a... Uh, studying to be a pastor the other day, and he was talking about his friends who went to a Christian school with him. And then afterwards, they came out and they formed this group of people that were, they were like traumatized, apparently, by being in a Christian school. And so they have this whole group now, right? And, and my friend tried to get in there and argue them. And I said, you know, you got to recognize something that's going on here. They're not, they're not rationally fact-based, right? They're emotional about this thing. They have a grudge. They're bitter. It's really hard to, to be having a fact-based discussion with somebody like that, you see. And that reminds us when, when we're in a situation where somebody is just coming back with all these objections. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Let's do what Philip did. Don't even argue. Don't even try to debate. Don't say, well, you know, these scientists have found this, um, this, this little bacteria that all the pieces had to be there at the same time, and that's why evolution is wrong. Well, you've got to remember something. Most of the people that we meet that are for evolution, half of them couldn't spell it, and 99% of them couldn't give you the first level of explanation of it. And that tells you that it's really not about evolution, you see. It's really about they don't want to have to face the fact that there's a creator and a judgment and righteousness they don't have and they need a savior. And they'll come up with all kinds of things to try to push you away, try to not have to deal with that. That's what it really is. It's a matter of will. It's a matter of not facts, but will. The will has to be there first. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do the convicting. And and even the Holy Spirit, he doesn't convince people that evolution is wrong. Right? What does he do? He convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's, those are the issues for the unbeliever, you see. All right? And that's why only then do we have the great news, right? That yes, you're a sinner. There will be a judgment. And for those who are, um, stay in there unrighteous, right? There will be a judgment and they will flunk the judgment. That's, that's the setup for the gospel. So Philip ignores this slight about Nazareth and just simply says, come and see. Nathanael came. Jesus, knowing everything, knew exactly what Nathanael had said about his hometown. And what does he say? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You see, basically, Jesus told Nathanael, Jesus said, Nathaniel, you're an honest guy. Now, I don't know whether he's responding to what he said bad about Nazareth, but that would have been an honest thing to say. He was saying, this guy doesn't lie. This guy tells the truth. This is an honest man. People also have honest questions. You've got to distinguish between that. When somebody, when you, it takes some discernment, but when you're witnessing to somebody, you've got to be able to make a distinction between an honest question and something that's trying to avoid the issue. And Philip, Philip um, Jesus knew that Nathaniel was an honest man. But then Jesus tells Nathaniel something only God could have known. Only God could have known. Look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Now remember, he didn't say his name yet. He just said, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Apparently, you know what? That was really who Nathaniel was. And Nathaniel knew it. And here's this person he never met before, and he's saying, there you are. You're the one who has no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know this about me? And then Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, minding your own business, you know, no, not even 
paying attention necessarily yet to what was going on over here with me and Philip and so forth. You were just under the fig tree, and I saw you. I saw through you. I saw exactly who you were. And then what do we get after that? We get Nathaniel. And then he gives his own remarkable testimony. These are two days of testimony and invitations. And what was Nathaniel's testimony? Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now again, Nathaniel probably heard this from John. Nevertheless, in the face of this irrefutable proof, this is indeed, this is indeed somebody more than anybody I've ever met before. He knew me, knew me inside and out, and he just all he did was see me from a distance. So he recognized that. The rest of this gospel, by the way, was written to convince everybody else to believe what Nathaniel already knew that day. Notice. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, the Christ. John chapter 20, 31 says the purpose of the whole gospel, right? These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the king of Israel, the son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So we have the entire purpose of the whole gospel brought to life in the words of the testimony of Nathaniel right here in chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. That was just the beginning, just the start. None of those five men that day could have possibly imagined what lay just ahead. Jesus' final remarks were met for all five of them, all five members of the Galilean contingent. Verse 51. He said to them, truly, truly, it says him, and it is him, but he was basing you know how sometimes you talk to one person, but you're really talking to everybody? You know, parents have a way of doing that. You're talking to one of them, but you hope the other kids hear the same message because they need it just as much, right? That's what happened here. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to all of you, you will all see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. This imagery comes way back in the book of Genesis. Let's just go there and see it for ourselves, don't we? Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. This will be the last passage that we'll see today. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jesus says to the Fab Five from Galilee, I truly, truly, I say to you all, you will all see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All the way back in Genesis, that was the vision, that was the picture, that's the imagery that Jesus calls to mind again, only now there are some differences from the dream that Jacob had. Let's read it, verse 10. Jacob departed from Beersheba. Now Jacob's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Jacob was a name that meant swindler, deceiver. All right. He would have his name changed later to Israel. Same thing. He would be made into a prince of God. Then Jacob, 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 Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and laid down in that place. He had a dream, a dream, just a dream now. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, notice this, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jesus Christ was the manner in which all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
He came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. This was a prophecy about the Messiah coming. And then by his death and resurrection, the whole world would be blessed. The gospel would go out to everyone, whosoever believes. Well, that was Jacob's dream in the book of Genesis. And now we see at the end of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, his dream is about to become true. Jesus and his five disciples were headed to Cana under an open heaven. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for all your good gifts. We thank you, Father, the amazing prophecies in the Old Testament that get fulfilled with the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We thank you also, Father, that you've given to us the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross and the resurrection. We thank you, Father, that by the means of the Holy Spirit's work in the unbeliever and in us, we have the privilege of being able to declare the best good news that anybody who's paying attention could ever hear. Father, as we leave today, help us to continue our journey in the Gospel of John together. Help us to especially take away the principles that we need to take away from this in terms of understanding what we really seek, in terms of understanding the great privilege of preaching the gospel and leading somebody to Jesus. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, keep reading the Gospel of John. Please, please. Not for my benefit. You know, there's nowhere where I go this week and say, hey, guess what? I think 12 people now have read the Gospel of John. I get my little brownie points and my little pastor stickers now. It's for your benefit. That's why I'm saying it. Every Thursday we have Bible study, right? It's on Skype for the time being. We used to meet here face to face, but we were in a, in a room and, you know, sitting at tables with one another. And still, hopefully these vac- this vaccine will work and everybody will be back to normal in a couple of months. We can only hope. But for the time being still, we're on Skype. It's a 6.30 Thursday evenings. We're studying the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. If you have any questions about today's message or anything really having to do with the Word of God, I always invite everybody to just send me an email. I'll answer the email. Give me time to think about your question rather than just something off the cuff when we're passing by. Right? Email me, pastor at lbible.org. You may be wondering today, some of you may be wondering, well, is it, when is it going to happen? When are they going to pass that basket around? I know it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Why? Because the, the Lord tells us in the, for the church, he's saying, don't be passing baskets. Don't be setting tithes. This is a matter of spirit and truth. When your heart is grateful and you realize that the Lord has blessed you, then give generously. Not, not because you have to fit it all in a little box, right? Just give generously when you have the opportunity. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again. We thank you for all of this. We thank you for all our brothers and sisters that were gathered here today. We thank you that we have the message of hope, that even at a funeral, we can bring in that message of hope that will set everybody free if they would just believe it. We ask now again, Father, for your provision for us during the week, for those who are sick, that you would make them well, for those that are having difficult financial circumstances, that you would see them through and any other problems people are facing, Father. You know what they are. We would again ask for your hand to be upon everybody and to take care of their needs as you promised. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, you're dismissed. Enjoy one of these last great days in Florida before we get into the sticky, thunderstormy, hot, hot part of the year. For those of you who are Irish, I wore a tie for you today. Happy Patty's Day.